their book detonate so stay tuned So welcome everyone to Future of Data podcast. Today we have an amazing session uh, for all of us planned. So we have the author of authors of Detonate, an interesting book, and we'll we'll talk about it um, in the conversation today. And we have with us guests uh, Jeff Tuff and Stephen Goldbach. And to give you a brief bio, uh, so Jeff Tuff is a principal at Deloitte. I'm a senior leader of the firm's innovation and applied design practice. In the pa- in the past, he led the design fr- firm Doblin, and has uh, was a senior partner at Monitor Group, serving as a member of its global board of directors before the company was acquired by Deloitte. He has been with some form of Monitor uh, for more than 25 years. He holds degree from Dartmouth College and Harvard Business School. Uh, Stephen Goldbach is a principal at Deloitte uh, and serves as its organization's chief strategy officer. He's also a member of the Deloitte US executive leadership team. Before joining Deloitte, Goldbach was a partner at Monitor Group and heads head of its New York office. Goldbach helps executives and their team transform the organizations by making challenging and, and pragmatic strategy choices in the face of uncertainty. He is an architect, expert, uh, practitioner, and teacher of the uh, variety of strategic methodologies developed and used by Monitor Deloitte over the years, serving clients in many industries, including consumer products, uh, telecommunication, media, healthcare. Goldbach helps companies combine rigor and creativity to create their own future. He holds degree from Queens College at Kingston and Columbia Business School. With that, uh, welcome to the podcast, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Beautiful. So, um, exceptional background, by the way. So, let's. Why don't we just walk through your journey, like your background? Uh, what What has led you to this book called Detonate? Go ahead. Well, so I would say, for, for I'm sure you've taken a look at the book, and for anyone that has read the book, I have a somewhat ironic journey, um, given one of the pieces of advice we give in the book, which is to embrace impermanence and. Uh, I've had a, a not very impermanent career in consulting for over 25 years at this point. But the interesting part of that, I think, has been I have always been open to doing something different along the way. So I've mm-hmm. been considering other opportunities. I have been looking for ways to redirect my career. Um, but what has happened over time is I've, I've continued to find fascinating issues to um, work on with my clients. And that has kept me around in a variety of different roles, working for a variety of different companies over time. Um, but you know, really, that has been my my journey up until this book has been everything I've learned from my corporate clients over the last 26 years now. Yeah, and and it's funny if you go back, you know, 20 years or so, I aspired to the kind of career that Jeff has had, um, and I was the world's worst business school applicant, and was rejected by every business school under the sun before I before I was uh, admitted. I was rege- including by the school I eventually went to. And so, what were you, that, were you actually enrolled there? I was enrolled. <laughs> I, I did go. I did actually attend. I did actually attend the school. And and but what what that made me realize is in is the importance in your career journey of taking advantage of serendipity. So even though mm-hmm. I've been, even though I I I was I started my career like Jeff with Monitor, and then I spent some time at Forbes, uh, and then came back to Monitor. It's been about trying to take advantage of those unique opportunities that are put in front of you that you couldn't have predicted you would have gotten. So even if that's internally, um, the, the sort of the moments that have mattered in my career have sort of led to different progression, even, even uh, you know, getting to be the chief strategy officer of, of Deloitte US wasn't something that I was looking for or applying to, but it, 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 came, about, uh, it came about circumstantially and it was, it's been fun to do. Interesting, um, and thank you for walking us through that. So let's let's talk about detonate, and I think that's the fun part. Uh, I want to have a conversation on today. So, uh, what is detonate, and and what's the motivation behind the book? If you can walk us through that, we'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website First Friday Fair. .tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. So the original motivation, this, uh, the book actually came from a conversation Steve and I had just over a year ago um, when we were discussing the idea of writing a book together. 
And the observation we made at the time is that we were continually working with our clients and hearing from our clients, why do we do this stuff? Mm. Like, why, why do we have to go to so-and-so meeting or why do we have to follow so-and-so process? And as we started to, to just share back and forth some of the experiences that each of us have had, we seem to hear the same types of themes come up time and time again about the, the playbooks and the so-called best practices mm. that most companies were following that actually, when you sit back and consider them, just don't seem to make much sense. So we, we hypothesized at the time, and through the research that we did with the book, it, it seems like the hypothesis bore fruit, that what was happening, especially now with the um, nature of change in the world everywhere, but in the business world in, in particular accelerating, people were trying things from their playbooks that they had learned growing up in these companies, and they were getting bad results. And instead of doing at that point what would be the logical thing, which is go and try something different or look for a different type of playbook, they were simply adhering to the playbooks even more strongly because they didn't want to mm -hmm. take the personal risk to do something different. And so they adhered to the playbooks even more strongly. They got a bad result. They went back to the playbooks. And we just witnessed this downward spiral. This, we call it the vicious cycle in the book that seems to be happening in almost every industry out there today. So that really became the core premise for um, why we wrote the book and, and what the core content in the book is. Interesting. And I think um, one fascinating thing that when I was reading um, about Detonate, I think um, it, the, the sound of it, or, or at least um, the message that I'm getting is pretty much like what um, um, Nassim Taleb said about anti-fragile, right? So just do, just don't break your mold and do something different. And so what is, um, so what do you want to achieve from, from, from this book? So I think, we want, I think we want our readers to think more deeply about what the problems that they face are and how they might solve them. And, and as we say in the book's title, bring a beginner's mind mm. uh, to those problems. I think that as, you know, to build on what Jeff had said, the challenge that I think people have and organizations have as collections of people is that the safe move is to do the thing that has been done before by your predecessor because you're not going to look stupid by doing it. Mm. But increasingly, that move is not the right move that will advance the corporation or the organization in the future. And so, but the reason for the, like the underlying motivation to make that choice is because I personally feel safe. And so what we have to do is detonate the, the thinking that says, the thinking that says, well, you know, this must be a good idea because people have done it before to getting a better logic for why you might choose to do something, which is we believe it's going to delight our customers. We can see a path to, we can see a path to changing their behavior. And so the, the cause that we want to, the effect that we want to have, that we want to be the cause for is causing people to not accept we've done it before as a good answer and instead think about, well, what is it that we're trying to achieve and 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 how will we affect that change interesting and i think one thing um i was noticing in the book was i think your emphasis on um just get rid of best practices or or at least sh shake them enough like businesses have been relying on that for for quite a while like why do you suggest changing it and what what's what's your thinking behind that so there's a there's a um core belief that we have, and I'll, I'll come to it in, 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 in a moment about what best practices will lead you to, but let's be very clear about something. Best practices exist for a good reason. So these, these weren't just simply made up by someone and claimed to be best practices and, and never worked. These are actually things that have been in place in a lot of organizations for many, many years. Um, the consulting industry itself has propagated some of these best practices and, and what it has taken to some of its clients. And what has happened over time is people have learned the quote-unquote right way of doing things. Mm. But especially when we face the um, increase in change that I mentioned before, you've got to just pick your head up and consider, are these really the best practices? Yeah, it, it, even if you just think about it logically, the best practice that you may have in your organization is likely shared by others outside your organization in your industry. So your competitors are probably using those best practices. And what in that circumstance makes them best? Wouldn't that just make them the average practices if everyone is actually using them? And so beyond being the things that lead to playbooks and orthodoxy within organizations, we actually think they're not a good source of competitive advantage and actually doing things differently and considering the fundamentals behind a business, as Steve talked about before, is what is going to lead to competitive advantage. 
interesting. And that'll just build on that. I'll just build on that, Charles. So the the other thing that we we would say is that look, there's some things that you should just pick up on because they're non they're non stupid. And we start the story, we start the book with a story about Billy Bean and the way he reinvented the practice of using analytics in baseball. Mm. And this is a perfect example of where not following something that's been proven to be better is simply a silly idea. So, but what it also showed was if, if something was available to everyone as analytics are in baseball, it wasn't going to lead to competitive advantage for Billy Bean and the Oakland A's, which while they had a fantastic season in 2000, other teams like the Red Sox and the Yankees and the Cubs who are playing money ball with more money um, have achieved far greater success um, leveraging analytics. And the teams that haven't adopted analytics are simply also rands now, and they're mm -hmm. just performing worse. So when there's a good idea, you should adopt it. But what we're seeing with disruptive technology is that the good ideas that have been good in the past may not be the best going forward. So you've always got to be go back to that first principle type thinking where you constantly reexamine is this is this really the good is this really the best idea that we can have? And then sometimes there are best practices that you want to that you want to follow because they're merely non-stupid and you should and you should do them but they're going to be available to everybody else and sometimes you have to invent things that are going to create differentiation for you like jeff said you can thank steve for all the sports analogies in the book, <laughs> <anyway>. <laughs> yes i think and, and and by the way uh amazing cartoons as well i think that's also uh, something to keep keep you awake um, uh, well tom, tom fishburne was awesome <laughs> to work with just i i know he was fan. big fan uh couldn't couldn't no, agree with you know, tom yeah <laughs> So, um, uh, one thing that I was thinking about when, when reading the book, and, and, and this is from my personal experience of personal engagement with leadership uh, at, and data science uh, related companies. It's a great book for a strategy group, for, uh, right? So, they're, they're always thinking about what new thing, how strategies are impacting, how things are changing and all that. But if I'm at ops level uh, within an organization, I have been doing what I had been doing. I've been told I have goals are assigned. Everything is I had a playbook that that I that's given to me for me to experiment on. How much relevant is this book for someone who is deeply engraved uh, in a PNL responsibility of, of their their ops? What, what's your thoughts? We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. So for what it's, so for what it's worth, we think this book is for everybody because mm -hmm. everybody within an organization makes decisions. And the way in which they make those decisions, whether they're following past conventional wisdom or they're really thinking deeply about what's going to delight their customers or what's going to change their employees' behavior? Everybody's making decisions, so we don't. You know, even though you, you're talking to a, a couple of folks who have been part of a strategy practice for a long time, we think of this book as just a helpful way to better think about making decisions um, or challenging the the mindset that you bring to making decisions. And so we wouldn't call it a strategy book, although we think it's helpful for mm. for strategists. We just think about this as a mindset book. It, and I, I completely agree with that. And I would say that if you think about the essence of one of the principles of the book that we've got in here, which is the, the necessity of focusing on human behavior, mm. as I'm sure you recognize, mm. we're not just talking about consumer behavior when we talk mm. about that. We, we're talking about employee behavior. We're talking about operations behavior. And there's no one closer to that behavior and understanding what's happening today and what needs to happen in the future to create new economic value than the people in operational roles. So it's absolutely vital that anyone that wants to put in place some of the detonate principles filters this through the organization. It's not something that that strategy can do alone. Interesting. And if if, if we talk about, say, um, a detonate mindset, right? So what would that mindset? So if I am an executive and what's your definition of, say, this guy is compliant to the detonate mindset. So what would I, I had been doing or I, I should do um, that would qualify me as a uh, this guy. Absolutely. So we, we talk about the detonate mindset as having two different halves. Um, one half is about thinking differently, which is really the mindset um, part of it. The other half is is about acting differently. But the two components of thinking differently are, number one, as Steve talked about before, bring a beginner's mind to everything that you do. Don't presume that your past expertise or the people that came before you in the company, their past expertise 
is going to be what will carry the day uh, and instead consider things from a fresh perspective. That's sometimes difficult if you've, if you've grown up within a company or an industry, but um, keeping an open mind and keeping an open aperture on the, on the variety of different possible solutions to any sort of situation is absolutely vital. And we talk a lot of, in the book about how to spot and challenge orthodoxy, which I'm happy to go into in more detail um, later on if you're interested, but that's one of the key tools that you can use to bring a beginner's mind to situation. And the reason behind that, by the way, again, as we mentioned, most of what we're saying is mentioned in the book, so I can probably stop qualifying most of what, that, <laughs> of what I say with that. But there is a quote that comes from, I think it's um, Zen mind, beginner's mind, or, or something along those lines, which is that in the mind of the expert, there are few mm. possibilities. In the mind of the beginner, there are many. And I'm probably getting the quote a little bit wrong there, but that's entire, the, the, entirely the point here, that if you bring a beginner's mind to situations, you're going to see many more options and many more ways of acting than you would if you're the so-called expert. So bring a beginner's mind is one critical component of the detonate mindset. The other component is to focus on human behavior. And so we have a very simple hypothesis and, and a belief, I think it goes beyond the hypothesis, that the, the most basic um, unit of analysis, unit of economic analysis for any company is human behavior. And I don't care how machine operated you may become or how much you've been able to build um, technology into your operations. At the end of the day, your growth and your, um, and, and your profit margin is being driven by someone choosing to act in a certain way. So there's, mm -hmm. a, there's a truism from the world of marketing, which has been true for decades and decades now, which is that if you want to be really efficient in driving growth in the market, what you need to do is identify the right customer behavior. So someone gets someone to buy a new product or to pay a little bit more for an existing product or what have you and then identify amongst all the different behaviors you could drive in the market, which ones are gonna have the most economic upside, hmm. and then aim all your resources at driving that behavior. That's a bit of an overstatement, maybe not all your resources, but really focus most of your disproportionately, resources. Disproportionately, yeah. 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 On, driving that, on driving that behavior. And that's something that, that people have known for decades, but it, you rarely see it put in practice. We're simply taking that notion to the entire, set, uh, to the entire operations. The same thing can be applied if you're a machine operator uh, in a manufacturing company, if you can identify how you want that machine operator to act differently to drive efficiency, for example, into your process, it's going to have as much leverage as driving a certain customer behavior. And you've got to change the incentives for that machine operator in order to change the behavior, which is why we talk about the the existence of that vicious cycle, which is mm -hmm. to you've got you've got to you've got to make sure that you change the motivation so that that the result that you want, which is that machine operator to change their behavior, actually happens in in reality. And then, Vishal, there are the two other principles that are around act differently. Um, so Jeff talked about think differently, and the two principles around act differently are making minimally viable moves. So in a mm -hmm. world where we believe that it's harder than ever to uh, analyze the past in order to create the future, um, uh, in, in, if that's the world that we're living in, because the world, if you, if people believe that the world is changing, then the past is going to be increasingly less good of a predictor of the future. Um, and that's what we hear from uh, executives that we speak with. And so it's incumbent upon them to put things out into the marketplace to test to see whether they'll work as the means for learning. And so we talk about a concept that, that uh, is a build on concepts from design thinking and agile, which is, uh, which is make minimally viable moves, mm. which is try new things in the marketplace um, before uh, before you launch them really big so that you're, you're um, instead of launching something really big and then learning and celebrating failure, we'd say, well, actually, let's not have to celebrate that failure. Let's not fail so big and uh, actually fail at a much, if, if we are going to have our hypothesis proven incorrectly, do so at a smaller scale. So we would suggest that one important element that needs to be built in is minimally viable moves. And, and the, the choice of words there is, is purposeful because we're not just talking about products that we're launching into the market there. We're talking mm. about any sort of, of organizational move that you make. So the same concept, that, as Steve said, that comes from yep. the world of, of design where you develop a min minimally viable product that you can test with the market, that, that can apply to making an organizational shift, for example, or trying a different process out or what have you. Don't go and take on a big honking set of risks to go try something differently. Mm. Do a controlled experiment and course correct as necessary. Yeah. So for one example that I can give you within my, within my organization, we do a sensing report. We do a sensing report for our strategy group inside Deloitte, and I wanted to make some changes to it. And rather than, say, task a team to go off and, uh, and develop a new sensing report, I said, have... 
have a prototype on my desk in two weeks. Mm. I want to see. I just want to see what it looks mm. like. What would you do if if I was the if I was the customer? And initially, of course, my team was like, "Well, I need a lot more time to do it." I said, "No, I don't want to give you any more time. I want you mm. to just do the best you can in two weeks, and we're gonna, you know, you're gonna do a great job in a couple weeks, and then we're gonna do something different." And and then just to complete the the four the four principles of detonate, the the last one, which is complementary to making minimally viable moves, is embracing impermanence. And the reason we want to embrace impermanence is because once we erect structures and processes and and roles around uh, things in an organization, become really hard. Um, they become really hard to um, to remove, and especially when you get human behavior involved. So I just came from a conversation uh, this morning. Um, uh, I, I, I won't share the general the general context for the conversation, but it was a it wasn't with it was it, it wasn't with my daughter. Okay. It was it was, with a, it was it was around should we you know should this particular organization think about their differentiation by business first and then complement it with geography and 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 other other sort of modes of thinking about it. And what I said to them was, if you start to think about business first, that will get solidified into your mindset, and you won't see any other possibilities of how you could flip that you could flip that orthodoxy on its head. And so um, you start by thinking, what could be the overall differentiation, rather than thinking about, well, we've got this set of businesses, what's their differentiation, then how would we add on that? So once you put structures in place, it's really hard to get out from under them. So when we talk about the concept of impermanence, it's just don't um, don't look at any structure, organizational structure, as if it's going to last forever, mm. right? And just know that it's know that it's temporary in some way. And and if the context around that changes, you'd be willing to change it. Interesting. And um, um, I think you briefly talked about orthodoxies, right? How they stifle innovation. So, what's your thought? What's your thought on what are some of the best practices, or how, what are some of the ways in which I can identify those orthodoxies and sort of and fix those and root root out any of those to help me sort of be more agile and grow. So what's what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, so so orthodoxy is a great way of um, stepping back and just considering the things that you do as an organization. So um, when we're asked for advice on how to handle orthodoxy, there's really two different sides to the question. The first is identifying the orthodoxies in the first place, and then the second is determining which ones to challenge because. Not every orthodoxy should be challenged. Orthodoxy is just a um, another word, a fancy word perhaps for conventional wisdom. And you can identify it by just asking yourself and asking your executive team or anyone in your in your company, why do we do the things we do? What do we believe about the way we need to operate? What do we need what what do we believe about the way we go to market? So there's lots of organizations who has a has a certain distribution system or a certain sales channel that they believe they're going to get in trouble if they try to go around. What do we believe about the way our competitors are likely to uh, react if we do something? If we raise prices, for example, what do we believe about our industry structure? What do we believe about the impact of technology on our business? Mm. And all of these, everyone has these beliefs. And, and cumulatively, they create a belief system that is the sum total of all the orthodoxies for a company. And it's really easy to get them out because you just ask some of those questions. Yeah. And, and it's amazing, actually, how forthcoming will it do, people are, are with their ideas once you start to ask the questions. When you start to say which one should we challenge, uh, it's really important to remember that not all orthodoxy is bad. Okay, mm. there, there's there's sometimes very good reasons for some orthodoxy to be in place. Sometimes it's regulatory, and going and challenge, challenging an orthodoxy that's going to get you in trouble with the regulators is probably not a good idea. Mm. Sometimes orthodoxy is related to safety, to human safety. If you think about large manufacturing operations or oil and gas companies who have people out on rigs. They have playbooks and they do things for a very good reason, and that is that there is human safety involved. However, there are some orthodoxies, especially ones around the commercial system, that actually make no sense when you step back and consider them, and they're simply the way things have been done around here forever. And you can, you, you can say in those circumstances, what would it look like if we didn't do that? Mm -hmm. so what would it look like if we didn't use this distribution channel? Or what would it look like if we didn't raise our prices on the third to last day of every single quarter? What would end up happening? Although the, my favorite example that, that I've heard you give you know, for years with orthodoxy is imagine a grocery store that didn't have an express line. And why might they do that? Well, express lines are their, you know, are their least mm -hmm. 
you know, they're their smallest customers, not their largest customers. And so why don't you have an, an express line for the for the person who's shopping, you know, along with, uh, you know, a couple children and got mm. a basket full of groceries spending $200 and give them special treatment and motivate them to come to the store more frequently because they're, they're spending a whole lot more at the store than the than the person who's coming in and just, you know, grabbing a carton of milk or something like that. And so just breaking the orthodoxy and how that could lead to changing, you know, certain segments of customers' behavior in a positive way. And, and the cool thing about doing that, about challenging orthodoxy and saying, what would it look like um, if this didn't exist, is it forces you to look outside. It forces mm -hmm. you to look at the way other people operate. And, and you, you should ask, can we see any evidence of other companies, either in our industry or outside of our industry, that don't follow this orthodoxy? What does it mm -hmm. look like? And mm -hmm. then try to imagine that within your own. And it's uh, as as we've gotten into these conversations with people, both while writing and uh, while writing Detonate, and now that the book is out, it's amazing how many light bulbs seem to go off in the moment mm -hmm. where people say that actually doesn't make much sense. There's no reason why we do things that way. Interesting. No, I think I, I couldn't agree more. I think that's a, that's that's pretty. When I was reading that book, I think it, I was getting this uh, this sense of uh, a fuse is going off here and there. I think it was very very carefully written, and, and thank you so much for. For such a, such a good you, read, you, you took the meta, you took the metaphor well. Then <laughs> <laughs> the detonate metaphor, right? Exactly. So it's it's. I think it's um, uh, one thing that um, sort of from again from my experience that, that I that I was when I was reading that, I was thinking from a three mindset. So whenever I talk to a team, I talk to like. Uh, What's so are are they representing a jungle gym scenario where the innovation they're more responsive to sort of whatever ideas ideation is very 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 responsive. The other thing is like driving in a high, like off road. So sure they are going somewhere with it. There's some sort of structure given to the what they want to do, and but it's not they they still have not figured out the scaling mechanism yet. And the third type of sort of uh, whether you call it companies or or teams or whatever is the highway, right? When you're just walking or driving at 80 miles an hour or maybe 100 miles an hour, barely have any chance to sort of look around or back or all focus is on on the speed. So when when sort of from your vantage point, uh, when you when you deal with sort of these three sort of container of of clients, uh, how would they perceive detonate, uh, or how can they sort of um, utilize the idea of detonate mindset in their respective quorums? If you can if you can share some perspective on that. So so I think actually it's a really interesting analogy that you're using there. I haven't either heard it or or thought about it that way before, but. Um, if, if I may borrow it and, mm. and try to associate it back to some of the ideas in the book, I think what you're describing is not necessarily, at least in my, my observation, is it's not necessarily different types of companies, mm. but it's different roles that different people in mm. every company have. And so you will have seen at the beginning of our book, there's a fundamental premise to um, the entire book, which is mm. that most organizations, especially scaled, successful organizations who are the ones who are, who are most susceptible to best practice and conventional wisdom, um, need to operate their core business even as they try to do things differently. So mm -hmm. I would I would call your super highway where you just kind of get in the car and and go as fast as you can, never look back. Somewhat somewhat akin to what it means to operate a core business doesn't mean operating mm -hmm. a core business like what mm -hmm. you're meant to do as a company is easy, but it does mean that the guardrails are there. You know the direction you're going in. You know how fast you can go without the wheels coming off, and hopefully you can do it without getting into an accident. And that mm -hmm. really is meant to be the machine that funds the rest of the innovation system. When you start to go off-road, though, or when you're, and I didn't hear your first example, it may have been, okay, so when, when you start to do something that's off the highway, that's mm -hmm. when you start to get into adjacent or transformational innovation spaces, and where you don't want to be putting the, uh, putting the pedal to the floor or using the same assumptions about how you how you drive on the highway. I'm now probably getting twisted up in your in your. <laughs> but that's where you, you you know you you can see only enough about the path in front of you, right? Mm. Right, and so you want to try to stay. You want to try to. That's where the concept I think of minimally viable moves yep. would come in mm. because you don't know where the path is going to go or if there's a rock in there, and so you want to proceed with with some caution and use different equipment in that in that particular yep. situation. Um, the the one thing I would say though that we're increasingly seeing is in the highway scenario. Mm. The challenge the challenge that more businesses are having is that they presume like this is precisely the thing that we want to we want to change. The presumption is that the road is going to continue to be straight and well paved and uh, the the conditions are going to be clear driving. There's actually a cartoon in the book where mm. the 
where the person is looking back into back yeah. back at, at her passenger saying, well, based on the road so far, <laughs> it should be a straight shot from here and missing the signs that the road is actually going off road. Mm. And we think that's a good metaphor for mm. what we're what we're facing, what co- what companies are facing today, which is the road has been well paved and clear. And the problem is there's going to be something out there that's going to cause that road to need some construction. And so it's better to be the cause of that construction than it is to be the outcome of that construction. And so you don't want to be going 80 miles an hour into a uh, into an off-road situation. You can think about it, Steve, as the as the cop on your superhighway. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, oh, awesome. So I think, and 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 um, uh, uh, very interesting, by the way. Uh, so I think you also talk, we're talking about sort of dismantling PNL, um, right? So you, you're talking about uh, that if we dismantle PNL, it will be a best thing on the on on the bottom line. Like, what's what's the thinking behind that? What yeah, if you can walk us through that. So, Je- so Jeff uh, talked earlier about the, the the sort of the most basic element mm-hmm. of business is customer behavior, and the thing that we want to dismantle about uh, P and Ls is the focus on you know kind of as we said with the road, looking backwards mm-hmm. um, at what we've done from a revenue perspective, and just linearly extrapolating that into the future. So the way that mm-hmm. um, the way that most companies do financial forecasting to say, well, we've grown at, you know, 5% over the last few years, you know, conventional wisdom has the industry growing at 5% and we're going to get our fair share. So therefore the revenue forecast is X Mm. and we want to have our profit be Y. And so therefore we can afford to spend, you know, this much in generating that revenue. And the thing that we like, when you think about it from a real world perspective, the world literally works in the opposite way. We spend money to create revenue, to change Mm. people's behavior, to create that revenue. And it's the mindset that we want to shift, which is that that somehow we have an inalienable right to that revenue in the future without doing anything differently. And if people believe that the context around our consumer's behavior is changing, then you've got to be able to, you've got to have the flexibility to do different things. But that P&L and the way we do financial forecasting is a constraint on thinking differently about what it's going to take to change people's behavior in the future. Interesting. And I think um, one thing I was, uh, so I, I, I have so much respect for um, something, something like this, right? So if you look at um, the ecosystem today, like most of the companies are, I mean, at least you're right that um, I'm terrified with the companies who are on highway right now, right? If they, any flick of change and they're off, they're just, totally busted out and we can name a bunch of interesting companies that we have never imagined would be folded um, in last in last maybe decade or maybe five years, maybe two years. From your vantage point, how much of their problem was what you're describing the detonate mindset? How much of like uh, is, is, is the primal reason why um, they are not able to sex, sort of uh, sustain uh, the similar sort of mindset uh, when the entire transformation is happening underneath the, these guys? We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. Well, so I, it, a lot, I think is the short answer. I mean, that, mm-hmm. the, there's a few examples we talk about in the book, and I think a lot of it comes back to Steve's point about the inalienable right to a certain revenue stream or, or the world operating in a certain way. So um, Kodak is one of the companies we talk about in the book. It, it is a famous example of a company that was on top of the world for some period of time and then suddenly and dramatically was not. And the key issue that they had is they did not believe, even though they were the ones who actually invented the first digital camera, they did not believe that the world was going to shift as suddenly and as aggressively towards digital. And, and really what they wanted to do is protect their short-term revenue screen, uh, stream. They wanted to continue to be a essentially a film production company. And when I say film production, I mean producer of films, mm. not uh, mm. like a, a <laughs> yeah. camera films, not, not, not a, not a uh, media powerhouse. Um, and, and look what ended up happening. And it, mm. uh, we weren't in the boardroom at the time. We don't know the, the full inside story, but, 
what you hear anecdotally and what people have written about for years about Kodak is they had those blinders on and they just wanted to stay on the superhighway as it had been mapped out for them and they just couldn't, couldn't conceive of things actually being different. So imagine instead of the P&L or the financial planning session in, let's, let's pull it away from Kodak, make it just about anyone, but mm. imagine instead of starting that by saying, what do we think our revenue is going to be in five years? Imagine if they said instead, what do we think consumers are going to be doing in five years? Mm. What do we think the right behavior, what do we think the behavior of, in Kodak's situation, the picture taking public is going to be in five years? And then they would have started, they would, would have gone there to say, what is going to be financially beneficial for, for us? What behavior can we drive that's actually going to drive real good financial outcomes for us? And what, therefore, do we think we can earn from all of that? It's a completely different approach to to not just doing financial planning, but to doing strategic planning generally. Yeah. Interesting. And and in uh, when you were sort of crafting this 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 book on on called Detonate, how much did you appreciate the existing culture of a company? Like, how much is uh, do you appreciate that businesses maintain and preserve and protect the culture when they look at the Detonate mindset? What's what's your what's your thinking on that? Well, actually, what we say is that uh, we need to detonate aspects of our culture. Mm. And uh, if we want to get different, like culture is a massive motivator of people's behavior inside an organization. Right. And it's a choice to have. It's not a it's not an uh, it's not something that happens magically. It's a choice by the leaders of that company to have that culture. And what the leaders can do to change the culture to promote a uh, a mindset more consistent with the principles we outline and detonate is to ask different types of questions or change the way people are uh, people are incented in order to to do behaviors because the 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 culture is nothing more than the sum of everybody's behavior inside mm. an organization and if you if if the leadership is is strongly committed to changing the way people behave then they've got to do different things and you can't just get up and say we'd like our culture now to be more collegial we're, we're and innovative. We're now going to be innovation. We're going to, mm. you know, as, as, as Jeff is fond of saying, we're now going to put some Play-Doh in the room and, 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 and give them like fancy toys and, and, and stuff to go have, go have some fun. It's like, you, you have to actually change how people are measured, what they're rewarded for both explicitly and implicitly. And that will start to provide the mindset. So if you continue, if you, if you say we just want to act differently, but you don't change any of the things around you, you're, not going to get that kind of change, which is why we're in this vicious cycle. We're saying you've got to address that stuff. But but you but you led mm. Vishal with a really important word in that, which was respect and mm. respect for the culture. And I, and and I I do believe I think we both believe yeah. that mm. this can be done respectfully. This is not mm. despite the the mm. name of the book. This is not about coming in and throwing bombs everywhere. It's about mm. taking those small steps to try things differently to shift behavior over time. And the behavioral shift isn't just going to be able to be enacted by the so-called millennials or the younger generation. This is something that everyone can take on themselves. And so we do believe that this is a shift that even though it's an aggressive one that can be done with respect for the people that work in the organization, but also respecting that things are changing. Yeah. And that's why we came up with the title detonate. There's, mm. there's something about the word, which is about a controlled explosion, right? So it would have been easy to have explode or something of like that, but detonate was about targeting mm targeting a blast at a certain type of behavior that you want to change. And that's what we, we think organizations need to do because we are very respectful of the challenge that large organizations have, which is you've got to continue to run your business um, while making this change. And you can't afford to just blow everything up and still have these massively scaled organizations. And so it's got to be a directed and precise uh, uh, change mindset. Interesting. And I think one more thing that I was um, slightly confused about, and I think helped me understand that. So, um, uh, in some places, you you talked about um, failure is not okay, right? And 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 then you also talk about hey, um, um, don't build your company that lasts forever, right? So, how are if you can walk us through why like why this this shift in mindset and and what do you mean by that? So. Failure not being okay is, I'd like to expand on that slightly and, mm. and um, say that what's not okay is celebrating failure. It, oh, say, I don't know okay. if you remember the cartoon in the, in the right. book where you had the guy. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I, right. I, I, I heard yeah. it, 
I heard failing is cool now, right. and actually right. failing failing is not really that cool. Right. The, the key, though, is that in order to make progress, you, you absolutely do need to learn, and hmm. it's very hard to learn without taking some missteps along the way, but, but in, in any sort of circumstance, whether you're talking about um, launching a new product or making an organizational shift. The key, though, is to make sure that you're not opening up yourselves to such potential loss, such significant potential loss, that what ends up happening is you fail outright. Mm. And what it, 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 it's amazing to me how often we see these days if a new product launch has gone badly for a Fortune 50 company or mm. if um, there's some sort of explanation for why quarterly results weren't um, quite what we thought they were going to be, where the, the scapegoat to all of that is, well, we have a, we have a, we have a belief in failure. We believe you need mm. to fail to continue. And, and I, I would argue that in most of those circumstances, the risk that that company took on mm. was way too huge because they did not take the small steps to learn. And so there is an aspect of failure, I suppose, that if you're taking the small steps that we talk about behind minimally viable moves, there's an aspect mm. of taking those small steps when you course correct, which is a very, very small failure. But the key is it's a failure that is so constrained that you're never going to fail yeah. outright. And that's what we really believe. And we would differentiate, and we would differentiate failure from having your hypothesis proved wrong. So I think the, the thing that we want to get rid of is, is making bets so large that you, have to, you can do nothing more than celebrate the fact that you were wrong rather than saying, I've got a hypothesis and I'm going to test it on a small scale to migrate my, to migrate my thinking. Um, and if you do that, there's no reason to celebrate the failure. It's like, well, I learned mm -hmm. something. We're going to keep going um, mm -hmm. because we've got enough, we've got enough, uh, uh, we, 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 we've got enough ammo to still to still uh, invest in here, but that's that's kind of the that's kind of the celebration of failure that we want to get rid of because it, it's it's really a it's really become a crutch and a substitute for actually designing a, a, a better test. Um, it, it's kind of like well, if we can just celebrate it at the end that we were wrong, then then it's fine. It's like no, just design a test that where it's not such a big deal if you. If you if you got your hypothesis wrong, and, and the interesting thing I would mm -hmm. say I, 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 again an observation in companies where we've heard the words "let's celebrate failure" is even though that may be said, mm. people are always felt that they're always left feeling just a little bit wrong about the whole thing. Like, okay, mm. I understand that I'm supposed to have an open mindset to failing, but failing actually doesn't feel that good. The great thing about minimally viable moves is even as you're course correcting and learning as you go along the way, you get more wins when you take the right steps and as you get more wins, you build more confidence and, and a lot more optimism on the, on the part of people working within companies than if you're willing to be open to significant failures and simply celebrating those. Interesting. And what about that, uh, the mindset of uh, building businesses that doesn't last forever? Like what's, what's that? So, so the, the concept of building businesses that don't last forever, I would parse into two, into two things. So one is, the notion of don't build structures and processes that are intended to last forever because mm -hmm. that makes it harder to change. And we explored that earlier when we talked about the concept of embracing impermanence. Mm -hmm. We have a, we, 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 in the last chapter, we talk about something called minimally viable thoughts, which were ideas that Jeff uh, and I had that we, 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 we weren't sure, we weren't certain enough about their, um, about whether they were right or not to have a, to have a, uh, a whole chapter on them, but they were just musings that we had, and in the in the uh, spirit of just sharing some thoughts at the end and, and taking some of our own, you know, eating our own dog food, we thought we'd share them. And one of the things that we, one of the musings we had was, well, you know, our right now the implicit assumption that every organization has is that it needs to last forever, and that's how we do valuation today. We you know we do a five or ten year financial forecast, and then we add a terminal value in because every organization lasts forever. Mm. But that has that in and by itself is a choice, right? You could say like let's say we're going to target a period of time, invest to create something really cool, and then not invest to have to reinvent ourselves as the world changes around us. We're gonna we're gonna win for that period of time and then say, okay, we're gonna take our money and go do something else with it. Increasingly we think if you want to last forever, you need to be investing in in more impermanence, more learning about your customer's behavior, more reinvention within your organization, and you've got to be able to reinvent your organization as context changes around you. And that's a skill set that we think needs to be developed today by organizations that want to. But then, you know, one of our one of one of our mentors, Roger Martin, is fond of saying the opposite of good strategy is also good strategy. Mm -hmm. And so therefore if lasting forever 
is a is a good choice that that smart companies could make. Certainly, having a targeted uh, you know time frame for where your business is going to be relevant might also be uh, a good choice. Interesting. I think and and one thing that um, from uh, from my experience and a couple of folks authors that 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 I talked about. Um, one of the uh, pivotal moments in their journey when they're writing a book is a lot of this aha moment when they um, some of the discoveries or some when they uncover some of the biggest surprises that they were sort of when you start with the assumption of detonate and when you sort of going through their research and so if you can you share some of those experiences with us uh, some of those aha moments when you're writing the book that hey I was not expecting this what's going on well, yeah, we had a lot of those. There were a lot of things we didn't expect in the course of writing this book that we, we could probably spend another hour talking about. But honestly, one of them was um, when we set out to do some of the supplemental research that we make reference to in the book behind some of the ideas. Because I think Steve and I were confident, having having seen these issues in companies for so long, we were confident that they were they were somewhat based in fact. But the... The amount of enthusiasm and input and, and actually humor that we got when we went out and did our research around whether or not the processes that we'd identified, the playbooks that we that we thought needed to be blown up, whether they were real and whether they were really driving people as crazy as we thought they were, was really enlightening. And it, I mean, I think it gave us the confidence to push forward with the book and to and to focus on the places um, that we did did in declaring the playbooks. But the you know it was almost like we put feelers out into the world. And we got this blowback of information immediately that, that from people saying this really resonates, and here's the 500 things I'd love to blow up along the way. Yeah, and, and, and I just read, 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 just I'll offer a very different kind of reflection. Mm -hmm. It's just a lot of people have asked for this is my first book. It's, it's Jeff's first book, but Jeff's written a lot more than than I have in the past. It's you know a lot of people have aspirations for uh, for authoring something, and I will just say I have an enormous respect for. People who do this who do this with some frequency because uh, you know it's one thing to have you know conceptualize some ideas that sound good in a soundbite or even a short article, but to to get them into a to get them into a long form was was really a a, a, a lot of learning for me personally. And so, uh, but having a great partner made yes, it yes, exactly easier. having a great writer like Jeff as your partner made it a lot easier. That's exactly right. Uh, awesome, yeah. and 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 what's uh, on on slightly different note? Whose decision is to involve Mr. Tom Fishburne's wonderful animations? I don't remember. So the we who is so well we we well I'll I'll give you a slight the the, the story of the logic for the cartoons, and I'm having it. I, I, I think it was your idea. I don't, you can claim the idea. Well, I, well Jeff had said so. We were we were you know there was some productive tension in. Uh, the 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 creation of detonate between Jeff and I, whereas I think I had a little bit more of a traditional book in mind, and Jeff was like, no, we want to make it like a coffee table book, and uh, with lots of colors and graphs and different formats. And yeah, you, and, see, you can see how many colors I got in this book. And, and his and his and his uh, it wasn't the colors, uh, but it was the it was the uh, I think what we said was we well what we settled on the objective was that we just didn't want to make it. A regular business book. Um, we didn't want to make it, you know, sort of a here's the paint by numbers approach to do it. You know, here's the problem, do it like this. We wanted it to mm -hmm. be a little bit more about here's how you should think differently and kind of have a little fun with it. And so th somehow that manifested itself as let's get a cartoonist. And we had a wonderful colleague of ours, uh, Megan Solomon, who did a bunch of research into in, uh, into who were some cartoonists out there that we could work with. And we ended up finding Tom, and he was. Uh, fantastic to work with. So we'd send him drafts of our early chapters, and he'd start to create cartoons. And it was great for us to see how they were, how the ideas were resonating with him. And actually, was uh, just a really fun partnership to have. And I think any reader would be happy that his pictures did save a thousand words because I, that's I think true. Would have I think a lot longer without Tom being involved. Yeah. I, I think I, when I was thinking, I, I could have just skimmed and just look at the picture and just move on and then see what's going on there. That would have saved, but I, I think it's 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 a well-written book, by the way. So um, now let's let's talk about um, from the leadership perspective, right? So if I if suppose I am a CEO and then I want to understand um, sell this idea of detonate mindset, I think, uh, and and not being yelled at by my board that hey get the f off and whatever, right? So what are what's what's your thinking on that? Like uh, how can I sell this idea of uh, of 
detonate mindset to my my leadership or, or my uh, sort of subordinates uh, within the company. So I, I think any leader has a choice if they want to adopt this mindset. Do they try to address it head on or do they try to do it subtly? And mm. uh, I think consistent with our recommendations around minimally viable moves, I would suggest at least starting subtly and, and the most powerful way um, that we talk about in the book to start subtly is start asking different questions. So you as a leader, any, any leader in any sort of executive function or non-executive function, if, you, if you're leading a group of people, drives a certain behavior in their part of the organization based on the questions that they ask. And so we talk about the, what, one of the questions that, that seems to always be asked is, what's the ROI of this move? What's the ROI of this investment? Imagine if instead of asking, what's the ROI of this investment? You were to mm -hmm. say, that, let, let's pretend that someone is bringing a new product idea to the table and you say, okay, prove to me that it's going to be valuable, prove to me it's going to be um, profitable. Instead of saying that, you say, how can we get to market as quickly as possible to test a small part of this? Mm. That, in it, that move in itself starts to push people towards the detonate mindset and, and opens up new opportunities of doing things differently. And now, I do believe that um, there needs to be a balance there. So if, if a company wants to adopt the, the, de the principles of detonate um, across its organization, you're going to have to be a little bit more overt than that. But I would start with those small steps. Yeah, and, and, and the other thing is just uh, demonstrate it themselves, like to the extent that they can. Like just say, like, I'm invested in this. We're going to do this differently. Make some, you know, make some changes, you know, like make some, you know, to, to figure out how do you shake up uh, leadership, bring in, new ideas, bring in someone from, you know, not who doesn't have any expertise. There's lots of different ways that you can demonstrate it. But I think, as Jeff said, the, the easiest way to start tomorrow is just by changing the nature of the questions you ask. And, and we've been getting a fantastic reaction from senior executives to, to the mm -hmm. ideas in, in Detonate. We, and, and without going into it in too much detail, the general reaction has been, wow, this is readable, mm -hmm. it's helpful, and I want to get this out to my whole organization. Hopefully, they will start to do things differently. So we applaud those that have uh, that have started to do that. Interesting. No, I think I I, I, I definitely second that thought that it, it has um, as as a leader who's worried about the future. It's 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 a very eye opening that uh, you have to reconsider and it's sort of uh, very out there. So um, what's next on Detonate? So like what's your what's your vision with this this particular book? Do you think it becoming in itself a best practices guide that you said hey you should you probably should challenge? What's your thought behind uh, what do you want to achieve from Detonate? Well, in some respects, Detonate in itself was a minimally viable move for Jeff and I. Mm -hmm. and so we didn't have a grand plan going in that there was Detonate and then, you know, Detonate 2 and Detonate 3 and, <laughs> and, uh, and, then, and, then, and then one called Put It All Back Together. Yeah, put It All Back Together. Like Nuke. We, we, yeah, we right. said we've, yeah. we've got some ideas. We've got some ideas. We want to get them out there. And we're still in the let's get them out there, let's get them out there stage and see what the reaction might be. Um, and so I'd say watch that space and we'll and we'll see where and we'll see where it, it takes us. But, but I will say we were very purposeful along the way to say it would be tremendously ironic for a couple of guys to come along with to write a book about blowing up playbooks. If what results <laughs> from it is another playbook. And right, so we right. absolutely do not, think... we, we do not. We, you, you're, you're not going to be seeing the publication of the Detonate Playbook anytime soon, I can tell you that. This is really intended to be some concepts that we want to introduce into any sort of organization to encourage people to, as we said, think differently and act differently and understand that there are a range of different yeah. um, ways of acting that, that will help along the way. Interesting. And um, so we are almost at the tail end of the conversation. And, and by the way, uh, uh, Jeff and Steve, thank you so much for being really candid about your time uh, with your time and, and about the thoughts on what went behind the, this, uh, this amazing book. So um, one thing we ask all of our guests to share is uh, some of their favorite reads that they want to share with our listeners and viewers. Besides Detonate, which is again, I would definitely recommend. Uh, it's, a, it's a great book if, if you care to learn about how you should stay relevant in the future. So what books you would like to share or, or with, with, with our communities? So I'll say my, my book, I, 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 um, I like fiction. And one of the reasons why I wanted to write a non-traditional business book is I'm a terrible reader of business books. So if you're asking me honestly uh, what, my, what, what books I would recommend, um, my, my favorite book of all time um, and it actually was re or somewhat recently made into a movie is Cloud Atlas by David Mitchell, mm. which um, I won't explain all the various different reasons, but um, 
it, it was just a fantastic, it was a fantastic shift in the genre and a different way of thinking about writing a fiction book that um, I will go back to time and time again. And I, I, I love a lot of his, of his books, but one, one that I've read more recently that I think is probably a little bit closer to home here and it bridges the world of fiction and business and innovation is um, called The Last Days of Night, which is a very well-known book. I'm sure, I'm sure lots of people have read it, but it's about um, essentially the advent mm -hmm. of electricity and the real um, characters like Edison and Tesla and others who were involved in, in the invention of electricity and um, all of the same challenges that we see in innovation today appear to be uh, in place around the most iconic version of innovation out there, the invention of the light bulb. And it was just, it was a, a fantastically mm -hmm. written book um, that, that told a true story as well, or mostly true story as well. Yeah, and I'll, I'll offer a, a, a few up. And I'm literally the opposite. I, I, I don't read a ton of, I don't read a ton of fiction. I get my fiction in visual, uh, in visual form, uh, from watching movies and TV. So I, when I read, I normally read a lot of nonfiction, uh, nonfiction stuff. And, um, so I would, I would categorize it as, I think every executive should be reading about behavioral econ uh, behavioral economics and mm. cognitive psychology and a great one to get started with is thinking fast and slow um, mm. it's just a great uh, it's just it's a great lesson on how the human mind works uh, it works in practice and how we know so much more about how the mind works and how human be and the details of human behavior and how they respond to and it's not always you know the logical uh, the logical way that you would you would might expect um, the other pair of books that I would I would uh, like I, I would pair together would be the opposable mind in creating great choices which is about mm. um, which are by uh, Roger Martin and then Roger and, and Jennifer Riel where the, the, the reason I love those two books is because it challenges the notion that leaders have to choose mm. right it says you know amongst two crappy alternatives most leaders to say I'll choose and the best leaders say well I'm going to get a better alternative and they talk about how they do that and I think that's very consistent with the the mindset that that we want to share it's like you know go create your future as opposed to accept to to uh, otherwise crappy alternatives and then the the, the last one I I name and it's it's a, another nonfiction but it's a bit more you know, towards that, towards that end is, is the Big Short by yeah. uh, mm. by Michael Rubin. And I just I, I have I, read that one. I love that. I love that because mm. it's just about a bunch of a bunch of guys who basically said this just doesn't make any sense, mm. and they were willing to place uh, you know a, a, a really big bet on something that didn't make sense and stick to it in the face of a lot of conventional wisdom that uh, that uh, suggested otherwise. Interesting. Fascinating set of books. I think. Thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, um, so, as a last question, uh, but not the least one. So, if our listeners and view viewers would take away something from what the detonate that we have not covered uh, in our conversation so far, what, from your vantage point, what would that be? What would be a takeaway that that you would want users and and listeners to take away from detonate? Yeah, I'll 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 start by just saying a really simple one. So. If you're getting that feeling in a meeting where something just doesn't make sense or you're feeling uncomfortable that, you know, I, I'm not quite sure why we've always done this, or if you're having that feeling, that's the time to say something and ask mm -hmm. a question about it. Um, that would be the one, you know, if there, was, if there was one takeaway, I'd say that's the, when you start to get that queasy sense in your stomach, I would, you know, ask a different question. And, and I'd add, and, and maybe we'll end, just go do something. You know, mm -hmm. this is not, the principles of detonate are not something where you need a six-month plan or an 18-month plan to go and try things. Just simply getting out and, to Steve's point, asking a different question or trying to do something a little bit differently is a step in the right direction. And that's how it all starts. Interesting. With that, uh, again, Jeff and Steve, uh, thank you so much. Uh, for spending a good amount of time with us, uh, walking us through your journey, um, through and explaining us what Detonate means. Wish you guys nothing but success on the book. I, I definitely would recommend. I would leave a, a comment on Amazon as well. It's it's a good book, um, and folks should folks should uh, get that. And 
you are always welcome on the podcast uh, welcome back anytime in future maybe talking about journey internet maybe on on your next book maybe nuke or whatever so uh, definitely uh, wish you nothing but success uh, <laughs> on, on, on your journey <laughs> exactly <laughs> thank you so all much right. all right thank, thank you Vishal. all right bye now. Yeah, I just, I just, uh, I that I would have to grow up so quick I'm so uncomfortable don't know anybody here just a couple dudes that I met once that's it and I go into the booth feeling nervous got butterflies in my stomach like I'm so worthless is the mic gone I don't know how to work this inside I'm breaking down I hope I'm not up on a circle